Today's guest in Women in Property is Lara Apillion. Founder of Lara Apillion Studio in New York City, Lara's architectural brilliance has been featured in prominent publications such as Architectural Digest. Join us as we explore her exceptional projects from the Polly Murray College and Benjamin Franklin College Design Team at Yale University to Full Floor Park Avenue Apartment. We will delve into her approach, which seamlessly blends creativity with functionality, resulting in the creation of truly inspiring spaces. This is Women in Property. to Women in Property. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here and so great to be able to chat with you today. Yes. So you are the founder of Laura Apillion Studio, which currently has its home base in um, in New York. And before we take a deep dive into, you know, your line of work and what you do, I kind of want to know a little bit more about um, your upbringing. So are you born and raised in New York as well? I was born and raised outside Philly and then mostly East Coast. And then New York, I really moved to after undergrad. And we would visit New York often because it's quite close from Philadelphia. So at a young age, I started to fall in love with New York. I loved the city energy, the vibe, how much like the variety of things there were, right? Just on one given block. And growing up, we also traveled a lot to Europe. My dad was is a materials engineer and um, was in education also. So we did sabbaticals and, you know, there's always this cross-pollination between his colleagues in Europe, whether it was schools or companies, and we'd always like come along when we could, um, more often than not, to be honest. So I got a lot of exposure to, you know, different cities from Copenhagen and Paris and Stockholm, Sweden, Bruges, Belgium. And it was just, it was wonderful. Growing up, you know, my dad would go to work a lot when we travel and my mom would do the daytime excursions with us. So I really got a lot of exposure to the children's parks and the museums. So that was just so fun as a kid. And I think my favorite for a childhood (laughs) frame of reference was probably um, Bruges and also uh, Stockholm. And so that kind of must have been a little bit of an inspiration to why you got into the architect space. Yeah, I didn't know it then, honestly, because I wasn't really exposed to architects growing up. It was more scientists and doctors no architects, um, oddly. Yeah. So I didn't know that's what it was, but that's what was always speaking to me. Like whether it was the color or the scale. I just remember a lot from when I was a kid. So I even remember like the scale of certain like plazas or piazzas mm. and how I would be like, oh, this kind of feels like a room or the space is hugging me or this museum I don't like or this I love. And, you know, just kind of the variety of scale and space as you are different sizes in life. I always loved and gravitated towards, but I didn't know what that was or that that meant that would lead to architecture till I was older and I stumbled across it. So you went on to study at not only Carnegie Mellon for your undergrad, but also Yale University for grad school. Tell me a little bit about your university time. Carnegie Mellon, I actually didn't know, again, about architecture. So I really loved maths and arts. So I thought I was going to be a civil engineer because, again, I only really knew scientists, engineers, doctors. And oddly enough, when I was visiting Carnegie Mellon, I was on a priority wait list and it was time to visit. And we visited and Andrew Carnegie designed the campus of Carnegie Mellon. 
And he designed it so that if it failed as a university, it could be converted into factories. So each building on the campus, like the humanities building has like a sloping main hall. So it could be um, like a gravitational conveyor belt where they would just, you know, it would, it would kind of take care of things having to go from one end to the other. So the architecture building where the freshman studios were was a mix of a lot of different schools, um, like engineering, architecture. Yeah, because they, they put the, our freshmen in the basement <laughs> with, with windows, but it's like quite hard to get to. So my dad and I were visiting and we were trying to get to some civil engineer, you know, info session. And it was, again, a building designed for a warehouse. So to, to go from the front to the back, you had to go up and down two sets of stairs. And it was quite convoluted. So we got lost and we ended up in the freshman architecture studios. And that's that's where I kind of discovered what architecture was in terms of a path for of education and career, because I saw what they were doing. They were doing their, of course, signature first year shop projects, right? Yeah. Where you you built you build a piece of furniture, and I fell in love with it. And that very next Monday, I put my application in for architecture and got in. And that really started it, started the the, the path, <laughs> so to speak. The, how was it studying architecture? Did you find it difficult, or were you just so intrigued with the with the major that it was easy? I loved it. I wouldn't say anything is easy. You know, I, everything that looks easy, people actually spend time getting the skills or doing the experience so that it's a point where it looks easy like even in the summer olympics you know those ice skaters mm -hmm. make it look so easy and then you step onto the ice with no training <laughs> you realize you know so everything it has that perspective so i wouldn't say it was easy but i loved it so i loved the combination of bringing in all these different disciplines right the especially at the time i went carnegie mellon architecture had a very interdisciplinary arc to the education. And I love that combination of bringing in the arts and sciences and math and creative thinking and theory, you know, hum human interaction, all of it together. Do you have a favorite type of um, architect style, a favorite architect? I love so many architects, right? Like Renzo Piano, Alvaro Alto are two of the ones that I was kind of obsessed with when I was younger. But really now it's a mix of a lot of things that I look up to. Some of them are other architects and, and designers. Some are artists. Yeah. Like Cy Twombly is one of my favorite artists. There's so many and there's so many current people. And then also some are makers, you know, uh, from fabric makers to furniture makers. So it's kind of gone from a lot of people that, of course, are the greats, but a lot of people that are up and coming that maybe even started their own studio during the pandemic. You know, so I love kind of also this fresh new current that we have. How was it after university? Was it easy to find a job in the space or was it difficult at the time? You know, you have to be scrappy, but yes. And it depends on the econ economic kind of situation of, of that graduating class year. So for better, or for worse, architects are a little bit uh, affected by that. But when I graduated undergrad, it was 2001 before 9-11. So it was a very soaring, exciting time. And it wasn't easy to apply, but I, I got a job and worked and then um, about a year later, um, I went to Yale for graduate school. And how was that, the difference between undergrad and, and graduate school? The difference was um, vast, but something that I was really, really ready for. So undergrad is really, you learn so many skills, you grow. You know, you're also a very younger age. I was like 17 to 22. It's a whole different development uh, phase of one's life, I would say. 
And then graduate school, even though I was quite young for graduate school compared to my colleagues who were like a good seven years, five years older, sometimes even more, it was much more, you know, career driven, I would say, and much more focused because people had a much clearer idea of why they were going back to school. Right. Especially us, us people that had already done a five-year undergrad that were going back for a two-year's master's. You don't need that, right? <laughs> so if you're going back and investing that time and money and effort and, you know, you're, you're, you're a little more, I would think, clear of why you're going back. Mm -hmm. That was wonderful for me. And did you guys have a lot of big projects that you were working on? It was uh, pretty similar in terms of the model of you have electives and then you have one architectural studio. And the wonderful thing about Yale that, that is still true today is that the advanced studios, um, you get to do a lottery, but you try to you get to apply for which studios you want. So when Zaha Hadid was coming, you could apply for her studio and hopefully get in. Or Keller Easterling is a full-time faculty, so that she usually does a studio every semester, if not once a year. So that was something, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to go to Yale was to study under Keller. Um, so that was someone that obviously I was going to apply to. Anyway, so so the advanced studios had a lot of visiting professors. Some are reoccurring, some are one time, but it was very exciting because there was a lot of variety and exposure and yeah, so it was definitely a combination between electives, classes, and or seminars, as they call them, yeah. and uh, studio time. After you graduated from Yale, what kind of work did you do then? After Yale, I actually worked at Robert Stern, Robert A.M. Stern Architects. And Bob Stern, during my time at Yale, was the dean. He was still the dean. Uh, now it's Deborah Burke, um, who's doing a great job also. So, yeah, working at Bob's office, I interviewed, you know, far and wide. So anyone listening that's about to apply, it's normal to apply to like sometimes 30, 40 places. Just keep at it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I worked at Bob's office and that was a really good fit for me because I wanted a lot of exposure in terms of high quality work, but a lot of different project time types, you know, and, and they do high end residential to mixed use, you know, residential apartments to universities, museums, they do all, all type typologies. So um, that was a good fit for me to, to work at a bigger firm with a bigger pool of people and projects mm -hmm. and just learn. I just had a lot. I wanted to learn a lot far and wide and fast. And how long were you there for? I was there for 13 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a good time. After you were there, is that when you launched Laura Pelian Studio? No. The story continues. <laughs> I'll give you the short version. After I left... Bob's office. I actually raised my two kids. I, um, I had a baby and I had a second one shortly at, thereafter. And um, yeah, I took two and a half years where I was freelancing and being a full-time stay-at-home mom at the same time. So I really wanted to be present for those early years and presently actually be there for all the hours of the day. I was uh, freelancing at Charlotte Worthy Architect, um, which was great. But yeah, that was that period of time. And then I started working um, at Smith Marin Architects in Montclair for about a year. And by then, honestly, I was ready to launch. So shortly thereafter, um, in 2019, I, I launched Lara Pelian Studio. What would set your studio apart from the previous places that you have been? I feel like the answer to that question, it gets cultivated while you're working at other places. Because while you're working at other places, you're clearly learning a lot, right? And you're meeting great people and 
and learning and growing, you're also learning what you don't want to do and how you would not want to do it, right? So it's funny. Any any bad experience is still a great experience while you're while you're working places because you're still learning. Like learning what you don't want is just as valuable, sometimes even more than what you do want. Right? So and 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 not to to talk down on any place I worked. I loved every place I worked. So valuable, such great people um, that I still still am friends with. Um, but yeah, I learned that I wanted to, I learned always that I had a different voice than everyone else. I learned that I loved interiors as much as I loved exteriors and architecture. I learned that when you do residential, I can't not consider both or else it's not a space to inhabit, (laughs) you know, inhabiting it a space really has to do with both interior and exterior for me. Um, yeah. And, and then through time I learned how kind of my talents, right. That how I, how I interact with people and communicate, how that's so important to me um, and how I wanted to do that a little bit different and honestly have learned and still seek out how client interactions work with different industries, like the beauty industry, the automotive industry, the fashion industry, certain brands that have a really lovely client experience that speaks to me that I think really honors the client, the engagement and the work, the design, the value. That's that's something that I've made my own version at Lada Pelion Studio and something that's really important to us. So you kind of develop it as you go through all these other experiences in life. And we still, of course, are continuing to evolve. And if there's something that can be made better, it's it's, you know, addressed right away. Yeah. And so that kind of goes into my next question, because you guys work globally across, I mean, Manhattan and then California and also Copenhagen. But how do you adapt your design approach to all these kind of different locations while also maintaining a consistent kind of design philosophy? Yeah, I think inherently the way we design is the way we design. So the consistency is in the consideration of our clients, space, color, material. But um, in terms of speaking to the different locales, it's kind of the same to speaking to the different buildings that we work in in New York. Like some are very modern and and so we speak to that more and the client and try to make it like a friendly modernism. And some like our Park Ave apartment are very classical. So if the client, you know, is is welcome to it, we speak to that building. So it's not a complete. Um, so so the conversations that we have with the fabric of the built environment, whether it's Copenhagen or um, the Upper East Side in New York or downtown in New York, the conversation is a positive one. There's there's like a consideration to the context. And so I'm wondering kind of also uh, what your collaboration looks like working, you know, and teaming up with other kind of craftsmen in the industry. It's one of my favorite things, Emma. So so on any project, right, we think of it as a palette where we're curating what goes inside. So when it comes to like furniture, that means pieces of furniture, right? And and now that the world has opened up back up again, that the sourcing of that is global. It's not just local. Or it can be both, you know, but that's like a wonderful um, array of things that we're putting into a palette and curating. The same goes for the architecture and the build out. So when I have a whole project that needs a whole gut renovation or a new addition or a new townhome, we're looking at who are the the makers and the team makers. The team that we put together is really important. 
So part of that team is our internal team and any consultants we hire. Mm. Part of that is the external team, meaning the, the construction team, like who's going to make this and what's going to go in it. So we really carefully consider our contractor, contractor, general contractor, it's called here. So that's the builder. We make sure their teammates, like their plumbers and electricians and the mill worker, for example, that's really important. Yeah. So we make sure it's, it's a really sound team. And we work with people who like only work that way. And we love sourcing curtains, fabrics, you know, the millwork from sources that are really just excellent work, you know? So it just what we what we already are designing, mm-hmm. it, it honors the design and it just really executes it beautifully. How long does a project usually take? Does that depend, maybe? Yeah, it depends on the size. So if it's like a whole townhouse renovation, it can take up to two years, you know, depending on the site. Mm-hmm. The average apartment renovation um, in a co-op board usually takes up to 10, 12 months because, the co- you know, the co-op board approvals take some time. So there's like kind of this like approvals period in New York that, um, especially if you have a co-op that adds a couple, a couple more weeks, more than anyone wants. <laughs> yeah. You know, the consideration, it's an important step because there's so many people living side by side in this beautiful city. Yeah. No, I can only imagine. But also when it is that big of a project or, you know, it takes almost like a year, let's say a project Mm -hmm. takes a year. Where do you start? The very beginning. (laughs) So we start, we start with the existing conditions, right? Like what's there? We document that. And then um, for residential, I also start with the client's current condition of where they live. So even if it's like a temporary apartment, I want to see how they live, what they have, how much uh, we talk about, like how much closet storage they need, how much kitchen storage. We really get into a granular level of how our clients live that when we design, we're designing a custom home for them that really works for them. And the great um, kind of result of that is when when people move in, they're usually like, oh, it was so easy to move in. Everything had a place and everything fits. And we have like a little extra room, actually, or a lot of extra room and it's just so nice to hear that back. So that's like the the feedback that when I hear that, of course, um, we know we've we're doing we're doing something right. <laughs> also working, you know, on projects and just in life, I can imagine that you also go through some hurdles within the process. Is there any sort of creative ways that you go about problem when you face one, or how can that kind of look like? Yeah, absolutely. And this probably applies to other industries as well. But yeah, in architecture, I think the best way, um, any process, especially a year long, right, starts with design, approvals, and the building, you're always going to have some unexpected conditions. So the first thing and the best thing that we do from beginning to end is clear, open, transparent communication. Yeah. You can't ever go wrong with honesty and integrity and um like almost even over communicating. So that's something that we do from the very beginning all the way through the end. Um, And that looks like from the very beginning, before I even send a client a proposal, we talk about, we talk about construction costs. We talk about budget. We talk about timeline. Um, So for upfront, like to not use too cliche of an architecture term, but the foundation and the expectations are established and aligned. So, so I try to minimize surprises. Um, it also looks like before we start construction, we have a couple um, like expectation setting Zoom meetings because some clients haven't uh, 
renovated extensively. And even if they have, things have changed or maybe they don't remember, right? We do this all the time. <laughs> so so we have, you know, just an open conversation where we just say, this is probably what's going to happen and this is probably what you're going to expect. And, you know, this is what a pay app looks like. That's like a invoice from the contractor. And this is how often it's, you know, so we just kind of go through at this point, I know a lot of um, similar reactions that clients have had or questions why does it look like this? Or for example, before the the jip board is put on the walls and it's all closed up, it's exposed a lot because so many uh, tradesmen need to do their work. Like the plumbers need to run their lines, the electricians need to run their line. And for, you know, two, three months, it looks like a war zone and then it gets closed up quickly. And they're like, what? What happened? That was magic. They finally worked. Yeah. I'm like, no, they've been working this whole time. So, you know, it's setting expectations of the walls look pretty bad before they get closed up to your eye, right? It looks like a mess, so to speak. So, you know, we we just walk people through it because some a lot of our clients, it's their first renovation. Right. So and just make them trust the process. Yeah. And I think trust you have to earn. But I think if you're always communicating clearly, transparently, honestly, from the beginning to the end, that that gains trust. And listen, if there's ever something that was miscommunicated or an error was made, we're the first people to say, hey, you know what, you're right, and we're owning it, and this is how we're going to fix it. So it doesn't happen often, but you know, that's that's what is really essential and important, I think. I'd love to hear more about your involvement in the design team for the Pauli Murray College and the Benjamin Franklin College project at Yale University. How did that experience shape your approach to architecture and interior design overall? Yeah, that was a great project that was at Robert Stern Architects under Bob and Melissa Del Vecchio, Jen Stone, a lot of great people. Um, so the biggest way maybe it was Im impacted um, my life or my career was uh, other than the great people I worked with and just the work experience of working on a project that big and that fast um, was just the the rootedness in history, right? Which is a huge tenant of Robert Stern's work and his process. Um, so all those, all those, the result of a lot of research is what you see when you, when you walk through those colleges. So, you know, all the doors on campus were studied, all the gates, um, the roofing details, the gargoyles and like the the stone relief details, um, the raw iron details. So all the backstory of all that, all the precedent research that went into that, um, it was it was wonderful, of course. It's like a dream project for any architect firm other than the many long hours <laughs> that aside. Um, yeah, just the rootedness in history and then the process that we were able to invest in every single aspect of that project was really wonderful. Did you feel like kind of it was an honor having your graduate experience from Yale being on that project? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And it was funny. I learned a lot of things about Yale that I didn't learn when I was there, of course, um, because it, as a graduate school, you don't have free access to all the undergraduate dorms for good reason, right? It's, it's a very secure container for the people, the residents of that college. Um, so as a, as a, employee of Robert Stern do it working on that project, we were able to see a lot of pieces and parts of the undergraduate life at um, Yale that I didn't actually see as a grad student. I saw a whole another beautiful scene, but it was not the same. So that was great. How long did that project take? Yeah, I believe the design, and don't quote me on this, I believe the design was three years. It was done um, right after the market crash here. So the, we had a period of designing through CA and spec books and everything. And then 
there was a little bit of a lull for more fundraising to happen. And then um, CA and construction was launched. But I think there was like about a year lull where a lot of, you know, fundraising was still happening on Yale's part. Um, and then the building process, I think, took two to three years. So I'm curious also to knowing being a female in the industry, have you encountered some, you know, unique experience or any challenges? Uh, what's your perspective on being a female in this type of space? Emma, this is a loaded question. <laughs> a lot. This can be its own podcast. But yes, definitely. I, there's a lot I have to say on this topic because inherently architecture, listen, a lot of progress has been made mm. in the world and in the field of architecture. Um, that being said, it's still a very male-dominated field and and yeah from construction sites to architecture firms even though the demographics some firms are more closer to 50 50 it's rooted in practices that are very male driven so that's one of the, one of the many reasons i was um and still am so excited to have my own studio to have a space that allows women to have a work-life balance that um yeah really welcomes a female perspective welcomes a female work environment so in our final finished product of RRL renovations my goal is that you couldn't tell if it was made by a man or woman or a combination but our internal culture of our studio is such that it really um, supports females really supports work-life balance that whole like I don't know if you heard a lot or if it's the same where you live right now but a lot of architecture firms you know there's a lot of unpaid overtime work at least in my don't really career. yeah that's something we don't do <laughs> and when i interview people they're always surprised and i was like you know we work really hard we do excellent work we're very focused but then i want my team to have a life have a work work-life balance so yeah that's something in our in our culture in my firm in our studio we really try to promote females having a voice we try to promote unpaid overtime we don't support and we really support a work-life balance and also when my team like is having other experiences like seeing a great gallery show or a play or a walk in nature you know they bring that energy back into the studio and it makes our work better and so how do you choose uh the people that come and work for you often it's it's the skill set that we need um based on the projects and our internal structure of what we're looking for whether it's someone more junior or senior. So there's a variety in, in the skill sets that we're looking for because we also curate that internally. So there's a good balance and, and it addresses all our needs for our project. Um, the one thing that's a yes that's similar is that there's really great energy and positiveness on how we, we see every day. And there's a, a very high sense of curiosity. Whatever task or project or or work mm -hmm. that you're doing, there's a really insatiable curiosity and passion for what you're doing, which looks like, you know, answering questions before they're asked. Looks like really trying to figure something out. Like, where does this come from? How does it go together? What does it look like? When I order it, does it still show up the same? Is that, you know, is there, there's, sometimes there's a lot of interpretation that you have to anticipate in architecture. So just, just that kind of voracious curiosity and, um, also like a tenacity, like um, a willingness to take something on and step into something and, and like kind of a leadership mentality rather than shying back and being timid and not wanting to take the first step. So we really rely on people that have that tenacity. How big is your team? Right now we're four. 
And we're looking to hire one more person. And then you guys have your office in Harlem? Yep, in Harlem. And how is it working and having projects in New York compared to the ones that you have in Copenhagen or in California, for example? Yeah, they're quite different in terms of the process. The design is not different. The client process is not different. The outcome doesn't look too different. But the um, process in terms of approvals and and a little bit education uh, execution yeah. is a little bit different between New York and like Copenhagen or California. So um, in a way, everything outside of New York, I don't want to say easier, but has an ease to it <laughs> that New York City doesn't require. Um, so I think it's more just the approvals and the legalities are different, right? Um, but in terms of designing and clients and that process, it's very similar. Um, and also it means we travel a little more, which which I welcome. So I'm curious also to know uh, what your take is on upcoming trends or uh, innovations. Is there anything um, that you're excited about? The innovation in materials is something I'm very excited about whether it comes to more sustainably produced materials, recyclable materials, the whole cradle to cradle concept that's been around for quite some time, but it's that, you know, you produce something, even if you produce it sustainably great, what happens when that um, material's life cycle is finished, right? Is it a timeless material that will last, you know, many decades, and in, in which case it inherently has a sustainability in being timeless? Or is it something that, you know, in 10, 15, 20 years, um, completes its lifetime, then what? You know, and that can apply to anything from cars to clothing to, you know, building materials in this case. So that's something I'm always interested in. Um, Material Connection is like a website I always read on a weekly basis. But yeah, I have different sources that I just try to read up a little bit on that. I'm always interested in like where that's going in our industry. Jay, do you guys do a lot of networking or is it mostly like networking within other architect firms or is it mostly, you know, super focused on just clients? What does that look like kind of for you? Yeah, I wish I had a more systematic answer because I think it would make me more sane. <laughs> we kind of do everything. We, I definitely network with clients and, you know, I have a lot of client communication, I would say, especially on active projects. Um, we definitely network in our industry with peers. That That's also for sanity right because i'm networking with other studio owners and we have a lot of similar um challenges and victories and you know energy and things to share and then i'm always cross-pollinating with things that really inspire me whether it's galleries and artwork of contemporary and, and uh current artists whether it's theater film um traveling and seeing just different showrooms um, going to like furniture fairs like the Salone in Milan is just one example. But um, yeah, I'm just always like cross-pollinating and learning from any source that really I seek out or crosses my path that is aligned that, you know, um, ins looks inspiring and exciting. So yeah, we're, we're constantly kind of, I'm at least constantly <laughs> moving around and cross-pollinating often. Nice. And then um, looking ahead, I'm wondering what are your future and plans and goals for Laura Pillian Studio? Uh, we have many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ones I can share on this podcast are we, we want to keep on doing great work for our clients. Um, great work with great people is something we say in our studio. 
Um, yeah, so we want to continue in the the mid to high end residential world in New York and globally. Um, and then we want to continue having conversations with brands and makers to see what the next steps are on that. So that's like too soon to share, but um, yeah, keep your eyes peeled. Nice. <laughs> I am wondering what has been the most valuable experience for you in your career up to this point? To be honest, the most valuable, because there's so many great people I've worked with mm. that I'm uh, grateful for, still in contact with, that have just like helped teach teach something, right? So that whole model of if someone doesn't think, doesn't seem like they know something, pull them aside and teach them. So that kind of education component in my profession is kind of like the golden shadow yeah. of architecture offices, and even in New York. So that that has shaped me a lot, and that's something I definitely pass forward. I also love that part of it. Like I was always a teacher's assistant at Carnegie Mellon and Yale, um, especially in like drawing for architecture courses. So I always love that interaction of the educational academic world, right? And we try to incorporate that in our studio and in all, in, any interaction, even someone you're interviewing with, you're interviewing for your firm that, that is not a good fit. I always try to leave them with something even a client that's not a good fit because their project's maybe too small or their budget too low, I always try to refer them. So that kind of pay it forward uh, attitude has been very valuable. And I, I really enjoy sharing that and putting that out in the world. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that's just been very valuable, which is kind of a life journey I think a lot of us are on, is just knowing your own value and knowing your own voice. And that's, again, like a lifelong journey. And that's nothing that's been impacted by a project specifically or one person or one experience. But it's really, I think, something important to bring up because I think in for young designers, architects, realtors, it's something that maybe you're not taught in school. And especially women in the field, you know, often that gets very small and quieted down. So I think it's really important to keep practicing your voice and keep uh, acknowledging your value because that just makes you be able to voice questions and requests and can I or what if or how does this work? You know, and I think there's only really good things to be gained by that because it helps you learn and grow and be stronger and be a better example for other people. So it's like a door opening action. <laughs> it's been super insightful discussing uh, your journey and the unique aspects you guys have. And my last question to you is, if someone would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Oh, thanks for asking. And thank you for having me today. It's been wonderful to talk with you. The two ways are our website, which is www.laraapelian.com. And the other one is just our email, which is info at laraapelian, all one word, dot com. Nice. Thank you so much, Lara. Thank you, Emma. It was a pleasure.